Hi, everyone. Welcome to SACSA's new podcast, To Practice, a practitioner skill building process for the, from the field from two folks who don't know it all, but have and will continue to think a lot about it. Hi, everyone. My name is Montserrat. I am an associate vice president at James Madison University here in um, what is technically called the Commonwealth of Virginia. Um, so, yeah, that's an important thing. Fun fact. Fun fact. And I'm Kate Radford. I serve as the Director for Leadership Education and Development in the Center for Student Leadership and Engagement at Clemson University. So if it's your first time joining us, which I hope it's not, but you know, if it is, thanks for being here. Um, just to catch you up a little bit in case you've missed our first season or those first couple episodes now of our second season. Miles and I used to work together at Clemson. And um, when we did, our office at the time was about half graduate students. And through the years and our time working together, we reflected a lot on the training provided to our amazing grad students and came to the realization that we are the host for the practical experience for those students. And we bore a great deal of responsibility for helping to develop their practical skills. So this podcast is born of that realization. Um, since that time, we've spent a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of time um, thinking through the practical skills that are necessary to thrive in our field. And this podcast is for us to share those reflections, to continue to think about it for ourselves and to give us some time to sit down and chat together and stay in conversation now that we are in different states, because I do not live in the Commonwealth or a Commonwealth. I don't know. There's that. Yeah. Just a state, which is just a, a good state. It's a good thing, too. Yeah, just as good. There, no, no shame here. Um, alrighty. So this season, we're going to be talking about institutional politics. This will be our third episode in that arc. But before we get to that, personal highlight for me every time is preparing a little pop culture of true or false for my friend Kate. So we get to all just sort of marvel at um, Kate's pop culture knowledge here, which is um, not as robust as her knowledge of many other things. Um, yeah. So the theme this week is reality shows. So Kate, I'm ready. I think I'm ready. Okay. Well, I think I, I could do good in this one. Seriously. Okay. Well, listen, I believe in you in all things. So, um, so I'm going to, the way this will work, I'm going to give the name of a reality show and Kate's going to say whether that is true. That's a real reality show or false. That's a fake reality show. Kate, are you ready for your first one? Yeah, I think I can get a hundred percent on this. I really do. Wow. Okay. All right. Um, a lot Bachelor, of confidence. Bachelor Palace. Is that a is that real or not? No, that's false. That is not real. She's one for one, folks. This confidence. Wow. Brand new pop culture, Kate Radford. I was sort of playing on Bachelor in Paradise um, there. So I knew it. Um, I know that this is a podcast and so folks cannot see me, but I need you to know that I'm like physically like standing with like power pose like in my confidence of this moment of my pop culture knowledge because I'm finally going to get some of these right I think wow wow so just as a reminder for folks Kate has um <laughs> the first time got two of four right and I'm pretty sure last time got one of four so yeah it uh, wasn't good seems to know a little bit more about reality shows than she does at least thus far this far it's you know I shouldn't I should probably you know calm down a bit because I, I don't want to get overly confident here but I'm feeling good well, listen, I think your confidence is a reflection that you know more about reality TV than you do about pop culture, couples or Tom Cruise at a that's bare true. minimum. So, yeah, that's good. Thanks. OK. Um, OK. The next one is love on the spectrum. 
So hypothetically, if this was a real show, it would be a dating show about folks who are on the spectrum. Okay, I'll be honest, I don't know for sure. I haven't actually heard of this show, but I'm going to say true because I want it to be real. Whether it is or not, I'm going to put it into the atmosphere, into the world as a thing that should exist because that sounds like we're being, you know, more inclusive in our reality shows, which I don't have a lot of faith that we are actually doing that, but I'm going to say yes, because I hope it's true. She's two for two folks. Yeah. I have not seen love on the spectrum, but I've heard folks say really, really wonderful things. And I'm definitely interested in watching it. That's so cool. What's it on? What like, um, platform? pretty sure it's on, are you familiar with netflix.com? I think it's on <laughs> I actually still get um, all my um, movies, which I think is what you use Netflix for, right? I still get mine delivered from Blockbuster. Um, he's so. leaving his house right now with Uh-oh. his mom and his boyfriend. Uh-oh. And he has I need no to mute myself. He's showing. Miles is trying to show me, show me the show right now. Our listeners don't give away the stuff that w- they need to go watch it. Miles is fully trying to like put me in the show right now. We're ready. It's happening. Okay, it is on Netflix. I just uh, it, just confirmed I, on Netflix.com. Not prepared for the volume there. Uh, so I think what we we're I I'm not sure what we were listening to. I think it was Danielle Brooks from Orange Is the New Black that was speaking. Who? Oh, that wasn't the show. No, no. Oh, it what a went, bummer. Okay, went to Netflix, um, which is where you order your DVDs from. I think. And um, do you think they still have that service? I don't know. I need. I am interested. I don't know. My father-in-law told me recently that there is still a blockbuster store. Did you know that? There's like one left in Texas. I thought it was so in Alaska. I don't know. Maybe it is. I think it was Texas. If that still exists, why would Netflix not mail me some DVDs? Uh, um, I will tell you something funny quickly about that. So we cleaned out our entertainment center yesterday because um, it just was overwhelming. And my husband, Corey, was um, attempting to remove some um dvds that we just like don't need because they're all on disney plus like it's like movies we totally have access to in other ways so we don't need and what you should know about me i think we've maybe mentioned this on the podcast previously is that i'm a bit of a like i'm not going to use i don't i don't know i'm not going to use the word hoarder because i think that i'm not a hoarder but i do think i do hold on to things maybe a little longer than i should in certain contexts notebooks in particular for anyone that's worked with me um but I, I fear that maybe that is trickling down to my children because my kids were like adamant that Corey not get rid of these DVDs. They're like, those are our DVDs. And Corey was like, yes, but like literally you can watch this exact movie on a streaming service that we have and we can download it and put on your pad, like even for travel, there's no need for these DVDs. Mm-mm. Wouldn't let them throw them away. So that's happening. Mm-hmm. That is um, yeah, not ideal. That feels, that feels right. Yeah. It does yeah. feel right, but not good. Corey felt like he had already cleared the really complicated bar of letting you let him throw them away. He'd convince yeah. you and then got then the thrown a, a curveball there. Yeah. Real curveball. Yeah. So um, anyway, quick, quick update. Last blockbuster is in Bend, Oregon. So neither of us were right. Um, oh. As of 2019, that's the only one. All right. We got to keep going. Okay. Our next, our next uh, option for you here is blown away. 
So if this was a real show, it would be a show about, it would be a glass blowing competition. Mm. Don't Google. What are you doing right I'm now? I'm not Googling. I swear. Hands up. I promise. Um, no, I don't think that's real. I've never heard of that. And that sounds boring. Uh-oh, there goes her confidence. She That's a show? Blown Away is a real show, also on Netflix.com. And no. I'll have you take it up with my partner, who's a huge fan. Fortunately <sighs> for you, she never listens to this. But the fact that you're saying no. it's boring is gonna, it's gonna really going to cut them to the core. Don't hate me. I'm sorry. Uh-huh. Yeah, I... Mm, that. I think, I mean, I think glass blowing is cool. I just don't think I could watch a show about it over and over and over. Although people watch like couponing shows. So, you know, who knows? There's thrill in that though. Okay. Keep going. When you say people, you mean you. Okay. Um, <laughs> last one. Here we go. Okay. Are you ready? All right. All I'm right. going to be three for four. I'm ready. Master Chef Senior. So this is a spinoff from the popular show, Master Chef, hosted by Gordon Ramsay, looking for the best amateur cook in America. Started with MasterChef Junior, which is children cooking. And this is people above the age of 75 who come on this show and cook. MasterChef Senior, is that real? No, it's not real. And I know there's MasterChef Junior. There's not Senior. Okay, are you confident? Oh, come on. Yes, I am. Okay, you're right. Oh, yes. I made that up. Well, I thought it would be a fun thing to make up. But then apparently, I think there's like an SNL skit about that or some sort of speed. I could see that yeah, yeah. so anyway, okay 75 percent right. I'm saying I'm, that's not bad I'm getting better three for four this is your high water mark I'm gonna have to I'm gonna have to be uh, intentionally difficult next time that's fair that's fair you started out really hard for me those celebrity couples I was like no idea all right well thank you for those I always as always appreciate the time you put into uh making up fake shows to throw me off or um fake movies in Tom Cruise's case so thank you um so jumping into our content for today on our last episode we dove into how departmental and institutional politics may be similar or different or both um and this week we're gonna maybe zoom out a little further and talk about external constituents and um sort of how they play out in politics for student affairs practitioners. So let's start here. Miles, when you think about external constituents, what comes to mind first and who are they and why are they important to consider? Well, I I think the word external is tricky because I think that um I think we have a tendency to tie that phrase to folks who don't really, they're not in the business of this university and they're, you know, for however they may exist are sort of um, causing stressors to the day-to-day management of the university. And I just think that there's a world in which you can view it that way, or there's a world in which you could view it through the lens of interdependence and thinking through the university's responsibility to each of these folks. Um, and so, you know, the, the people that come to mind sort of right off the bat are state governing boards. So um, I work with the University Career Center here and um, the uh, governing board for employment 
is a big is a big stakeholder um and in a really positive one not you know not sort of a a source of challenge for us um i think uh local and state politicians definitely come to mind pretty pretty quickly um and there are some issues that are more what i would call um i mean everything's political that's what this is about but there are some things that are more sort of um known and understood outside of the realm in the day-to-day of the university that can become talking points, I would say, uh, for politicians of all sorts. So things like tuition, things like um, uh, DEI work, things like job placement, things like community development and um, the engagement of universities within community spaces. Um, So I think of those folks, um, I think, you know, we've got our sort of borderline folks, depending on who you're talking to, in terms of, uh, I would not personally would not classify uh, board members as external constituencies. I think that the, you know, in the structure of the university, these folks are incorporated. Um, they may not be here on a daily basis, um, but they are vitally important, and I would describe them as internal. Um, I think alumni are an interesting question in terms of whether alumni are external to the university. I think oftentimes alumni have more sort of day-to-day built affinity for the place than many of the people who are in the day-to-day work. And so, you know, how do you conceptualize that? But those are folks who are not here every day and can kind of parachute in in some ways. And then I think the one that I that I think about the most in the seat that I'm in and the one that I sort of spend probably the most time thinking about is the local community. Um, so these are, you know, uh, yeah, uh, we'll we'll get to that a little bit more. But yeah, local community is definitely top of mind for me. Yeah, I love that phrase, parachute in. Like, I think that's exactly for me when I think about external constituents, like sort of is a defining um, characteristic for me. It's like whether they're in it in the day to day or I love, yeah, love the phrase parachute in because I do think there is a lot of that that happens from our external constituents. And I got to think about your alumni point. I, I'm, I don't know. I don't think I would consider alumni external, but then I don't know when I think about the way that I define that, maybe I do. And I, I think it's also interesting to think about the, the size of the institution and like the number of alumni. Like I, I think at a smaller institution, like I went to a smaller and part of it's like, I'm an alum and I don't want to be considered an external constituent at my undergrad, but here it comes in. I want alumni to be considered external. So that's like a funny thing, just the, the number of people that that, when we include alumni, sort of who that entails and what that entails is an interesting thought um, that I'm going to reflect on a little bit. So, Yeah, I mean, I think I think it's a, a fast, I think sometimes we think of anybody who's not a current student as external. Mm-hmm. Like, I think there's sometimes where people are like, ah, oh, faculty or, you know, or, <laughs> uh, yeah. you know, it's like, if you're not like living on this campus right now, you're yeah. Or like you're parents. not a part of the yeah. thing that's happening right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I think parents is another good one. Yeah. I think that that's a, a fascinating, yeah. a fascinating question as it's like, is there, you know, do you define this by like who is doing it right now? Or is it more like stakeholders, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so anyway. Yeah. Well, and then thinking about the overlap, right. Of at a place like Clemson, we have a lot of legacy students. So thinking about like the overlap of parents, be- alumni becoming parents and like sort of what that looks like, you know, people can fill multiple roles. There's plenty of, plenty of people that I know that have 
gone to Clemson and then sent their children here and thinking about how those, how their roles change. And um, it, yeah, it's fascinating. All right. How do you define it, Kate? I mean, you talked about it a little bit. You got a, you know, prepared thought that you would want to yeah. in there. Um, well, number one, I think back to, we talked about this a little bit last, I think last episode or maybe the one before about like, I just think it's, it's a hard question to answer. Um, and I think a lot of it is dictated by like the perspective you have at the university. I think your point about faculty is a really good one. I think like for me, um, in student affairs, I don't, I don't know that I would consider parents as external. I think they're like very much in it because our office works with family programs, but I think like faculty would tell you like, no, like I don't want parents around, you know, not every, that's very general. I'm generalizing faculty a lot here, but um, yeah, I think depending on the seat that you're in at the university, who you consider external might look really different. If you work in alumni relations, alumni probably don't feel external to you. Right. But they, they might for someone who doesn't engage with alumni very often. So I think it's a difficult question to answer. So I'll just answer for me. Um, so for me, I think it's the people who are not physically present in the day-to-day work every day. And I know that, you know, that, already looks different in the last three years, two years than it did probably previous to that, right? Um, I think physically present um, isn't always a reality, especially on all campuses where uh, like distance learners may may not be there. So maybe I shouldn't say physically present, but present in some way in the day-to-day, everyday work. So um, like, I think for me, the reason that that's important is that they like see the ebb and flow like internal constituents see the like the good and the bad and the mundane and the exciting like they're not just to use your phrase parachuting in when like something there's a hot topic or you know like something um there's a talking point right but they're like just they're seeing the the everyday um and i think for me the the folks that are external they're not being in the day to day is actually what makes them feel the most precarious like they feel to me like so um like their perspective um is often driven by like hot topic um really like out front um so i think about crisis sometimes and sort of that role versus like hey i just got to see this student who Popeye and was excited because they aced a test, right? Um, that feels very different to me than people who aren't seeing like just the, the day-to-day, the day-to-day stuff. Um, I think the other thing that comes to mind with these groups of people, and I like the phrase of stakeholders too, I think we could use those interchangeably of constituents or stakeholders, but um, I think I consider a lot um kind of their competing or conflicting interests with either myself or with other external stakeholders or external constituencies that there may be, um, there may be really competing or conflicting interests between them. And that's for me, what makes it hard to work with various groups, right? That like, I think in some ways there is some, there's more shared um, interest or shared values, goals, uh, whatever that may be with internal constituents. And there may be when you think about the breadth of external constituents that are out there. Yeah, I think what, as, as you were saying that something that came to mind is that I think that we have a tendency, this parachute in sort of feeling is, I think I will use myself. Let me use an I statement here. I, I feel that way because I do not think it feels structurally reactive to me. Like you used the phrase hot topic. And I think that that is how we perceive external constituencies sometimes, but it may not be reactive at all 
to them. It may be part of a longer story. And this is just, it's about, to me, I wonder how much this is about like how communication channels exist. So like this may be where we're hearing from people about things, but it doesn't necessarily mean that that's not something that they were interested in for a long time. Um, Yeah, it's a good point. You know, sometimes it's hot topicy. Sometimes it's just like response, you know, responsive to stuff. Or sometimes it's just like this. Finally, you know, this like finally landed with mm-hmm. me, and it doesn't feel as lived because I haven't been like in it on a regular basis. I think it tends to feel surprising, mm-hmm. um, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it is inherently reactive. And I think those things are. I think those things are different. Yeah, and I think it could be too. It. I think it's like that. Their intersection with my work or with like the work of student affairs broadly is just less frequent. And so, it, it, you know, I think sometimes that can lead us to think that it is, it can feel reactionary too, but when it's really just right, it's like, it's just more periodic than, um, than consistent. And that, that feels different than some of the other relationships that we have with other, with other groups too. feels like we get to know them a little bit less, uh, maybe are a little less clear on, expectations and such um, when we're just not working with some of these groups every day. I also think you make a good point when you, when you say that, that it's, you know, I I think the ones that come to mind for me are the ones that maybe (laughs) present around hot topics or crisis issues, but I think external constituents are also like, you know, accrediting agencies and associations that our staff are members of, right? Like, like there's, you know, national associations and stuff like that, that I would definitely consider external constituents to the university that I think show up at times that are um, way less crisis driven or way less hot topic driven and are just um, less frequent. So. Well, I'm glad you mentioned relationships, Kate, because I think the next question is how you would go about building those relationships and understanding external constituencies. Yeah. What a question. Um, Wish there was a a straightforward answer to that or an easy answer to that. I think it's really hard because there are, I mean, as we've just pointed out through several minutes of conversation around who these people even are and, and, and what their, you know, interdependence and our responsibility to them looks like um, they're just, it's a broad group. And it is um, I think often involves a very diverse group of needs, perspectives, opinions. Um, so it's just, I think they, the relationships have to look really different with each of them. Um, at the core though, I think the way that you begin to to build that relationship or maybe to understand, um, that stakeholder is to understand their interests and their needs, right? So why are they involved? What are their, you know, what are their, I liked, how you mentioned the sort of long-term goals that they may have that we're only seeing a snippet of. So what are those long-term goals? What are, um, what's, what are the the values that, that that group broadly, um, holds? How do we understand some of their needs? Um, and I think you do that in really different ways with different groups of people, right? I think at any institution, there's going to be probably some folks that have really close relationships with any one of these stakeholder groups that we're talking about. Um, And it might be leaning into some of those and gathering information from those people, but I think also trying to gather some of your own information so that it's, um, you know, it's informed, but maybe not solely influenced by someone else's perspective on that, on that group. Um, I think for me, an important piece is knowing the power, um, 
that those stakeholder groups hold on your campus um, and sort of like how far that power extends. So is there, you know, the like legitimate, um, legitimate power that they might have over your work or the work of others and sort of understanding how that has played out in the past is really, really important. Um, and knowing, you know, does that power extend to one department? Does it extend more broadly as that? Does it extend up a hierarchy? Um, sort of, sort of thinking about almost like the, I'm like picturing in my mind, like there's sort of this like web that extends out from one of those groups and, and understanding how um, you're tied into that, but also how colleagues that you want to partner with are tied into that or um, student groups that you might be associated with that are tied into that and sort of understanding the breadth of that, I think is, is challenging, but really important to do. Mm. How about you? Well, I, so as I was thinking about this, I sort of landed on external equals expectation. So, and it's not necessarily a good or a bad thing, mm -hmm. you know, for accrediting bodies, it's about expecting quality. Yeah. Uh, for politicians of all stripes, it's about expecting the university to be contributing to the state community, whatever that they want to see. They expect a return on taxpayer investment. They want to see, um, you know, if it's a public school, it's taxpayer investment. If it's local politicians, they expect the, you know, the private institution to still be contributing to the local community in some sort of way. Um, but I think the other side of power that you mentioned, which is an interesting piece. So that's about, you know, in some ways, whether it's politicians uh, you know, whoever, you know, whoever it may be, we haven't mentioned donors, which donors mm -hmm. and likely overlap, but it's about sort of power that they can put on to the institution. Um, but I think the flip side of that is about when the institution holds power in a space, you know, when a place like either of the places that we work, which are very much college towns, it's about the local community expecting the university to responsibly consider its footprint. But, you know, but in, in many of those ways, also understanding that, you know, the university is the one that's wielding power there. So it's, you know, and there, there, of course, are ways that external, um, that the local community can, you know, can uh, exert stress on, on the university. But by and large, the, you know, the university has an ability to stretch and grow in ways that can cause you know, that can cause challenges and, uh, you know, how we work with our students off campus or how we work with our students on campus um, is really important. But yeah, I think about expect, I think about um, external coming with some sort of expectation. There is an expectation from the university to do something. And that's what those external bodies are there for. And, you know, and some of those things are, some of those things are good. Yeah. No, I think that's a good point. I appreciate your comment about not forgetting the university's power in some of this and that sometimes it, I think you're right I often feel like in conversations about politics and I, I think this extends beyond just external but in just generally I feel like a sense of maybe powerlessness is not the right word but like sort of feeling like I'm like I approach this conversation from a perspective of like other people have this power over me in my role and, and and I think the same is true thinking about like when we zoom out and think about external exactly as you as you've said that it's often okay these people have this power over the university but you're you're absolutely right there's a lot of power that the university wields as well and and thinking through that and using it responsibly and, and thinking about also how that influences 
maybe why other groups are acting the way that they are, right? Like what's the history there of how the university or your department, if you think about it on a smaller scale, um, may have utilized power either responsibly or irresponsibly in the past. And then how does that influence the way that another group is then coming um, to you in the future or coming to you in the present? So Miles, yeah. how, how do you navigate um, conflicting interests that's come up a good bit, right? That there's sometimes that exists for sure. Um, how do you navigate conflicting interests with those external constituents? So maybe like, what's your best advice in producing positive outcomes when working with these external constituent groups? Yeah, I, I like the way that you phrased that. I think the positive part of it, I think that there's oftentimes this depreciative concept about folks outside of the university. They're not in the work. They're not here. You know, we're here. Mm -hmm. And I think the question is like, how can we, how can we think about that? There's a phrase that my colleagues in service learning here use frequently, and they probably did not author this. I could, I could fire up a Google. I'm going to attribute it to them, but it's probably coming from someplace else, which is mutually beneficial and reciprocal. So how do we, how do we think about those things? Um, yeah. I mean, in terms of how we think about that and get to a positive place, I think one thing is to, um, you know, in the work of ethnography, for folks who are familiar with that, uh, with that particular methodology, the idea is that you're honoring the culture that you're going into. You're going in with the idea of I'm going to learn uh, before I study. I want to understand the space. I want to honor the space and honor the culture. And I think that there's something to that about how we approach external constituencies before we just sort of are like frustrated about this feeling of imposition into the day to day work. How do we try to understand how do we try to understand the things that are the things that are going on in that space? I don't work at Clemson anymore, but as a native of the state, um, was never surprised by the political bent of the state of South Carolina. It was never a surprise to me, but it seemed to be a surprise to a lot of folks who were not from South Carolina who ended up working there. And I think you have to understand, at least at that place, that Clemson as an institution exists within a broader state and within a broader context. And the university and the city of Clemson uh, and, you know, the counties of, you know, of Pickens and Oconee County and the state of South Carolina are all very different entities as you, you know, zoom out from them. And you have to understand that. And it's not to say that, you know, that um, that the political bent of the state of South Carolina is good or bad. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that that is like that is the reality when you are working at that place. Um, and to understand, I think that that culture is important for understanding how people are operating in the space. Um, but you have to understand that, like, if there are conflicting interests between the university and this entity or between varying entities, which happens oftentimes, that meeting expectations may not be possible. And you just like have to live in a space where you know that that's the case. And then when you make your choices related to how you navigate this, either mentally for yourself or how you are actually making actions and engaging, you just have to be able to look yourself in the mirror and know that sometimes you cannot control things and you cannot control people's interests and needs and wants and desires. And you just have to do the best that you can based on where you're coming from, your value set and the world that you want to live in and understand that sometimes that may mean that you're you know, taking risk and you may not be meeting everybody's needs and expectations. Um, and, and that's okay. You know, I think that the more that you can have that conversation with yourself ahead of time and know that you're making choices by either doing or not doing things, um, that you can, you know, work towards 
a positive outcome for the students that you work with, yourself as a human being, your colleagues, the institution as a whole, um, you know, and you have to decide where your priorities are and being able to do that and trying to think through those expectations. So, yeah, I think that's good advice, Miles. I, I, I think for me, as I think on maybe not like the flip side of that, um, but sort of related to that, that at the end of the day, for me, I think it's being able to remain focused on my work, um, remain committed to, you know, what I know I'm here for, or believe I'm here for, um, the work that I believe is important and to be able to, to stay focused on that and stay committed to that. Um, but not be so narrowly focused on that, that I lose sight of how those constituents matter and how they can positively impact my work, right. That I, I, I don't want to, um, sort of ignore them or push them aside to the point that I, um, don't value their perspective or value, or maybe not even value the perspective, but at least I'm considering their perspective and considering, um, how they're, how our conflicting interests actually could be reconciled to a point that might be beneficial for both of us or might improve the work that I'm doing. Um, cause I do think there, are, there are times where I have sort of, um, I think you and I have used this phrase before, like sort of hunkered down and just like almost tried to like block out the outside, right. Or block out some of these things. Um, and I don't think that that does a service to my work or to me, um, or as we talk about politics broadly, my political power, um, or ability to sort of navigate politics on, on the campus. So how about, um, a resource to share on this, Miles. Do you have something that you would recommend to folks? Yeah, so this book is a little bit old now, uh, but it's by Louis Manon. Um, and well, I, I think his first name is pronounced Louis. Could be Louis. Hard to say for sure. Um, but anyway, it's called Marketplace of Ideas. And I think it gives you a sense of sort of the way in which higher education operates and the sort of expectations that that folks have for things. Um, you know, I think it's it's important to remember that, you know, if you work at a public school, it was started by the state that you work in. Yep. And, you know, and the state that founded it may be very different than the state that you're working in now. But I think that, that helps give a sense of, um, you know, of whose responsibility is to be, you know, to be doing the work. So anyway, that's a thing I would recommend. Yeah. How about you? Um. So I have like sort of a model to recommend, but then I, my follow-up to that is that it's old. And I think a lot of people have since revisited it. So I would also recommend um, newer iterations or uh, re-explorations and revisitations of this model. But the model is the stakeholder salience model, which I'm going to also probably say some names wrong here, but it was uh, Mitchell Agle, as I'm going to assume you say that name, and Wood um, came out in the late 1990s. Um, and it explores sort of the seven types of stakeholders that exist. And it's based on like three dimensions. So there's like these overlapping concentric circles um, around power, legitimacy, and urgency, and, and what those stakeholders, um, sort of how they show up. Um, I think it's a cool model to think about for you and your work, like, I think I could do this. I could look at stakeholders and like put them in very different places than you might in your role or that my boss might or my vice president might. Um, but I think it's interesting to think through that and, and, and the, the stakeholders that you might work with and how you might classify them and then how you might work with them based on um, that 
classification. So I think a cool model to look at. But again, lots of folks have revisited that and reapplied it in sort of the current environment and argued that maybe some of the um, ordering and ranking is not um, accurate to the the environment that we're in now. So I would also recommend looking at those other follow-ups. Nice. Well, I am looking forward to checking that out. That's not something I've seen before. So thanks for that, Kate. And thanks everyone for joining us for To Practice presented by SACSA. You can get more information about SACSA, the Southern Co Association for College Student Affairs on our various social media outlets, including Facebook at facebook.com backslash SACSA fan page at Twitter at SACSA tweets, Instagram at SACSA grams. And make sure to sign up for the SACS alert, which will give you great information once a month. It's very unobtrusive and will keep you up to date on the goings on of SACSA. And the folks who put that newsletter together do a great job. Kate, anything you'd want to add? I don't think so, except what a great advertisement. It's unobtrusive. That's like what I need in my email pretty much like from everyone is to be unobtrusive. So cheers to that as we start the academic year. SACSA coming to you and, uh, the magic city of Birmingham, Alabama this November. So I did to be there. All right. Well, thanks, Kate. And thanks to everybody for listening. Thanks, everyone. Bye.